If you would remain standing, let's hear from God's Word this morning, from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, as we read verses 21 through 26. Hear now the Word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us today by your word? Together with your Son, would you, get, would you send the Spirit to open our eyes Give us food for our souls. Challenge us where necessary. Encourage us where necessary. Give us courage to keep your commands when called upon to do so. Help us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Today's passage has two parts to it. And... Just giving you a little insight into the sermon preparation process, I immediately saw this and said there are two points to this sermon. The first half is about affirming what Jesus says at the very beginning. In other words, he affirms the command not to murder. And then I thought the second half will be about hatred and addressing that inward disposition that gives rise to murder. And it started to look like a one-plus-hour sermon, so instead I scrapped it. I scrapped it and decided that this week you get part one, next week we get part two. So if we get to the end today and you think that didn't seem like a very climactic conclusion, just know the climax is next week and it's my way of forcing your hand. You have to come back to hear the ending. Um, but it is these two pieces to this, this passage here. On the one hand, Jesus says, you shall not murder. And he affirms that. He says, that's right, don't murder. Uh, but then you have this second half of the passage, beginning in verse 22, where Jesus takes that demand and he intensifies that demand. He says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable. So I want you to notice that Jesus does not lighten the commandment. Uh, he doesn't say, you heard that it was said, do not murder, but I say to you, forgiveness has come, and this commandment is no longer important, right? He doesn't diminish the command. Instead, he intensifies the requirements of the command, and he broadens it, which takes us to the second half, which takes us to what we'll be doing next week. I don't ever hit that, that's new. Um, Jesus says it's not enough to just avoid killing others, right? You also shouldn't even hate them in your heart. So he takes the thing that we're probably really good at, right? We're probably fairly good at not killing people. Um, but then Jesus says, but where does that even come from in the first place? And he gets deeper. He gets to the level of the heart and of the soul. 
Because remember, when, I, when I, we looked at these passages two weeks ago, we, I was mentioning the fact that what we're going to be reading is a commentary from Jesus on what it looks like to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And now we're starting to move toward that commentary. So now that we are in Christ, now that we can please God, uh, now that we have an ability to live out the law from the heart by the Spirit, not merely the letter of the law, what does that look like? Jesus says he wants us to keep the law the way that he modeled it and in a way that really was always there in the law to begin with. So what Jesus does here is he does not go in and take the law and twist it or change it or transform it or mold it into something else. What he really does is he looks at the law and he blows the dust off of it that had been accumulating through the traditions and through the teachings of the Pharisees. And he said, look at what's really here. And that's what he's doing. And so... Um, so what I want to do this week is I want to dip our toes into the water. Really, this is dipping our toes in, and then next week we're going to jump in. We're just going to jump completely into the water, and we will go deeper into what it looks like for us to live out this command, do not murder, in our relationships. What does it mean not to hate? What does it mean not to be angry with your brother? What does it mean to be reconciled with each other? Why does he connect this up with the act of murder? Well, stay tuned. Uh, but this week, we are going to at least look at the first part of this, which is Jesus affirming something that I think we believe is really basic. And I actually think that I don't need to convince you strongly that you need to know this. And that is this command, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I mean, you might think, well, if you don't need to convince us not to murder, then why don't we just move to the second half? And actually, it's because there are riches, even in this first part, that I think we would be missing out on, that actually undergird this commandment, and we need to appreciate it as Christians. As people who love God and people who love God's law, sometimes we need to take a step back and go, I take this for granted, but why? Why is it wrong to murder? What is it about human beings that make it wrong for us to take another person's life in the way that the scriptures say not to. And so let's tackle this command in two parts, in two ways. First, let's talk about the preciousness of life. And then second, let's talk about the preservation of life. The preciousness of life and the preservation of life. In other words, why is life valuable? And then secondly, how should we express the value of human life in how we care for others? That's the two parts of what we're going to do this morning. So the, the first puzzle piece when we're talking about the biblical command not to murder is this truth. God tells us that human life is precious. Where do we get that idea from? Richard Pratt tells a story of how he was teaching a group of Christians once and he asked the group a question in the context of his teaching. He said, what is a human being? And someone in the group yelled out, worthless sinners, was their answer. And everybody in the group starts nodding in agreement. It's like, you just got this room full of Calvinists. Of course, that's your, that's your answer, you know. And, and yet I wonder this, what would be the answer if you asked God? What would be God's first answer to what is a human being? Um, and I, I, I doubt that he would deny that human beings are sinners. He's, he's not going to disagree with the guy in the crowd on the one hand. He knows all human beings, uh, except for one, have been sinners. 
But I want to suggest that if you asked God what a human being is, you would possibly hear an answer that starts with this. Human life is valuable. Why is that the case? And the answer that he would follow it up with is, because man is made in the image of God. You have Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, for example. He tells Noah that murder is wrong, and then he gives the reason why murder is wrong. He says, for God made man in his own image. So he grounds the value of human life, not in the human life, but in the creator. So when he's talking to Noah, he hangs the wrongness of murder and the value of life on this one core idea, man was made in God's image. So if we want to understand the value of life, we need to know what the image of God is. And we need to think of ourselves and we need to think of our neighbors as image bearers. You first run into this idea of the image of God in Genesis 1.27. God applies this term to mankind. The text says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You have this term image of God and it's it's vexed theologians. Uh, even when I was in seminary class, I remember just taking the basic theology 101 class, and the professor asked, what does it mean for man to be made in the image of God? And it is amazing the number of answers people have to that answer. You know, some people say, well, it means that we're creative because God is creative. In other words, they point to things about us that are like God, things that we do that overlap with the divine being. Uh, and it's true. God is creative, and human beings are creative. Um, you also find just confusion when it comes to the idea of image of God. Some people have taken that idea of image of God and gone literal with it and, and in a very twisted kind of a way. Uh, in Mormonism, for example, they understand that God, they believe God is a man on another planet. And they see us as just little copies of God and that one day we're going to be gods on our own planets and we're going to... Uh, uh, one day, you know, be gods over these other beings, and that God was once a man like we are. Uh, and they would point to this idea of the image of God, and they'd say, see, we are copies of God. We, are, we have the potential to be what God is. Uh, a very twisted, very unbiblical view of what it means to be made in the image of God. God is not a man, except in the person of Christ. Um, if we want to make progress on this question, maybe we can ask the question like this. At the time that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, what would the, word, what would the term image of God have meant to him? What would it have meant to his readers? And one of the simplest ways you can answer this is simply by looking at history and looking at the ancient Near East. One of the things you find when you look at the ancient Near East around the time when the Old Testament was written you have this practice where there were, in fact, people who were called images of God. You have people who are called images of God. And the most common way of, uh, of speaking about this was in terms of kings and rulers. So not everybody in the ancient, ancient Near East was considered made in the image of God, but the kings were. And so the kings were like representatives of God, and this was where they got their authority. They would tell people, I am made in the image of God. Uh, pharaohs, emperors, kings, they were made in the image of the gods. And so, of course, they had greater authority and you had to listen to them and you had to care what they had to say. And so to be an image of God was to be an exalted earthly representative of that particular God. That's the way it was seen in the ancient Near East. 
Now, there's something of this behind what it means for us to be made in the image of God. Um, but here's what made the Israelite understanding of this so different from the surrounding cultures. Whereas in all these other cultures, it's this one individual who's special, who's made in the image of God. In Israel, everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone is the representative of the creator, in other words. So you think about Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve, they're placed in the garden, and they're on earth. They're, they're given this exalted position, this important task. You are to guard this garden. You're to cultivate this garden. You're to care for this earth, right? And they're put in charge of it, as though God himself were there cultivating and caring for it. And they're the ones, though, that are his hands and feet, and the ones who are actually there and doing it. And God puts human beings on earth to be like kings on the earth, given rule, given authority, given responsibility from God. It's delegated authority, but it's authority. You see this confirmed in Genesis 1.28, because right after Adam and Eve are, are, uh, are um, his image bearers, he gives them this kingly task. He says, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he uses these terms like subdue, have dominion, fill the earth. This is kingly language, right? This, this lines up with what it means for human beings to bear the image of God. Let's go a step further. Adam and Eve are, but what about their children? Maybe Adam and Eve are images of God, but maybe not their children. Maybe after the fall, they have children. Maybe they are no longer made in the image of God. And yet Genesis 5 records the birth of Adam and Eve's son, Seth. And it said, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. So what we're seeing here is that the same image given by God doesn't only remain on Adam and Eve. It's passed on to their children. All people are made in the image of God because they all come from Adam and Eve who are made in the image of God. Your parents were made in the image of God. Their parents were made in the image of God, and so on and so forth, all the way back to the first man and the first woman. And this resurfaces throughout the Bible, that even after the fall, we are still, in fact, made in the image of God. The fall doesn't destroy that image. The fall doesn't remove the image of God. We, are still, we still have this high calling given to us as human beings that we're falling badly short of, but we have the high calling. Um, and not just some human beings. This is another practice in our own day. It's a lie in our own day that's worth pushing back on whenever we have opportunity. But the lie that's told is this. Everyone is equal, but some people are more equal than others. Right? Everyone is worthy of life. Some are more worthy. A few months ago, at the end of the last school year, there was a young woman who gave a valedictory speech at her high school extolling her freedom to kill her children if she so desired via abortion. And she was proud of this. She was glad. She wanted everyone to know as the valedictorian that this is what defined her and this was something that was very important to her. Some people are more equal than others. It doesn't take a great deal of creativity to know that this is a common belief today that for some babies are life undeserving of life. They're an inconvenience. They make life difficult. They get in the way of plans. It's easier to have dogs than it is to have children, Right? And so you fill the city, uh, fill and subdue the city, fill it with dogs, but not babies, you know. <laughs> it 
And yet babies are still little image bearers. They are little kings and queens and representatives of their maker in a way that pets as important as they are never will be. Every person that you meet is an image bearer of the creator and they have value. Whether they are a little person not yet born, whether they are uh, somebody walking the streets going to their job, whether they are somebody with special needs or disabilities, they all carry his stamp. They carry his mark. They are valuable. They matter to the creator. What does James say in James 3.9? He says, how we speak to others is a reflection of what we believe about the image of God. He says in James 3.9, he's talking about how dangerous our words are and how dangerous our tongue is. And he says, with it, we bless the Lord and our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So again, in the New Testament, the teaching is all people bear this image. They all bear the likeness of God. C.S. Lewis reminds us of this. One of my favorite quotes from Lewis. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Um, It's actually part of a longer quote that's wonderful in its own, but keep it short. This is why scripture tells us murder is so heinous. It is such a wicked, serious crime. Why? Because when we kill another person, it is though we are trying to lash out and snuff out and destroy the very creator himself. It's an expression of our disregard, our hatred of the creator that we disregard and try to destroy our neighbor who bears his mark and bears his image. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. There's an argument there. Um, there's, the, there's the grounding for God made man in his own image. If you must ask why is murder against God's law, the answer is because God is valuable. Because God is precious. Um, the death penalty is instituted in Genesis chapter 9, not as a way of denigrating the value of human life, but as an elevation of the value of human life. He doesn't say, by man shall his blood be shed because his life is of no value. The argument is, the life taken is so valuable that it must be answered for by the death penalty. That's the argument. So the argument is not an argument from the diminution of human life. It is from the importance of human life. So it's very different. By the way, the death penalty is never, it's never retracted In the Bible, it's never repudiated by Jesus. He tells us not to personally take vengeance when others insult us or when others mock us. But the Bible, and certainly not the teaching of Christ, the Bible cannot be used as a justification for abolishing the death penalty. I remember some years ago, there was a man I greatly respect. And he said that while he has no problem with the principle of the death penalty, he said... At the present moment, he doesn't trust our justice system to wisely and equitably carry out such a permanent judgment as the death penalty. I actually think there's room for people of goodwill to disagree on this, but you can't biblically argue that it should not be possible. Uh, You can't go to somebody and say, the Bible says you can't use the death penalty, because the Bible certainly doesn't say that you can't use the death penalty. There might be a political argument uh, to be made. There's not a biblical case to be made against the death penalty. So um, argue against the death penalty if you think it's a bad idea in practice. 
but don't use Jesus to make your argument. This is a bigger discussion than we have time for, of course. <laughs> uh, in the next five minutes, we don't settle uh, all the difficult, weighty things of, of human life. But um, the death penalty is a political discussion beyond the bounds of what we're doing here this morning. But in theory, there's nothing immoral in itself about the death penalty. Because human life is so valuable, says God. That when someone takes another life, they are indeed being held responsible for the life they took in a way that declares for all the life that was taken bore the image of the creator. This person mattered and God matters and that's why we do this. All that is to say the preciousness of life is grounded in the creator of life. So we talked about why we shouldn't murder, but what about the command itself? You know, is this command just saying that as long as we don't take up a weapon, as long as we don't kill someone on purpose, that we've, we've kept the command? Well, no. Uh, Jesus next week is going to take us deeper into this command. He's going to take us to the heart level, and he's going to take us to the motivation level. But this week, let's just stay immediately with this idea of, of murder still and this idea of the life. Um, the command says, you shall not murder. How do we keep this command? For starters, we don't murder. I love when the application is really easy. <laughs> we don't murder. Now, let's pretend this is freshman philosophy class. This is like the first thing you do in freshman philosophy class is you sit around and you argue about these sorts of things. Uh, is it murder to defend yourself? No. Because... If the command not to murder was saying we can't even defend ourselves, we would make nonsense out of the text of Scripture. You have a, a passage, for example, in Exodus 22. It tells us this. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. It's Exodus 22. If a thief is, breaks into your house at night and defending your home, defending your family, you strike the defender the, or you strike the assailant or the thief... The defender is not guilty of bloodshed. He doesn't, he's not treated like a murderer because he didn't murder. So there's this principle in the Bible that it isn't wrong to protect yourself and it isn't wrong to protect others from unjust assault or danger. You have Psalm 82.4 that says we should protect others. It says rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Have you ever been in a position where someone needed help, maybe even needed physical protection? Some of you guys might have really cool stories. Um, I have a story that's not very cool. Uh, about six months ago, I was at Little Big Burger. Nothing bad happens at Little Big Burger, except this time. Uh, I was in there. I was waiting to pick up some food for my family, and I was waiting while the food was being prepared. And a guy came into the, the Little Big Burger, and he started lunging at this other customer. And he tried to grab him, and then he, he tried to swing at him, and he, he tried to punch him. And everybody started asking the, the victim in the situation, you know, do you know this guy? And the guy goes, I've never seen him before in my life. And the guy, just unstable, was kind of lunging at the guy and attacking him, and kind of started chasing him around, the little Big Burger. i got to stop saying little Big Burger. It doesn't sound like a very exciting story when you say that. Now, I'm telling this story because I didn't do anything cool. Uh, if I was a hero, I would find another story that made me look dumb. Um, 
but the, the you know he's he's a, he's a, uh, innocent. He he's unarmed, and this other man clearly means to harm him. And so as I was standing there, I I really did decide. Like I had to think through. I don't have a weapon. I'm not armed, and I don't have any kung fu skills. <laughs> um, but I did think to myself, I think this guy is going to hurt this other guy, and I wonder. Maybe the police need to be called, and, and I might have to grab this guy or hold him or restrain him or, or something. And so I, as I was standing there in my mind, I resolved that I would if it went any further. And, and then just at that moment, this, just, this lady behind the counter yelled at that guy and said, Get out of here, or I'm calling the police. And the guy goes, Oh, he turned around. <laughs> I was like... I thought, I, I thought, like, there's a chance I might come to church with a black eye, but uh, it didn't happen. Uh, the guy was very let down to hear that the police might get called, and so he, he left. But, but it made me think to myself, it made me think, what is my obligation before God? As somebody who doesn't actually have fighting skills, uh, I don't want people to know that. I want them to see my bulk and think, I'm not messing with him, but I couldn't do anything to you. Um, but you have to resolve those things for yourself. What is my responsibility? If I see an innocent person being attacked, if I see somebody being hurt, what am I going to do? Because sometimes you have to act quickly. Sometimes you have to do something. And you need to resolve for yourself how you're going to handle yourself in that situation. But I would just say this. Life is precious. Human life is precious. And there are times where we're going to be called upon to help other people. Um, we don't have permission in Scripture to attack those who insult us. We don't have permission in Scripture to attack people who hurt our feelings or engage in barroom brawls. We're not to be quarrelsome. We're not to be fighters. We're not to be violent people who look for trouble. But we may have a duty to even use violence at times, not for vengeance, but for preservation of life. Again, not because life is cheap, but because life is precious. And that also means that if we're ever in a position where we do have to take a life, that is a weighty thing. And it is not something that should be done haphazardly. And because of that, theologians have oftentimes made a distinction between murdering and killing. And they'd say it like this. I think this is right. Murder is the unjust, premeditated taking of life. Killing is either the taking of life that's unintentional or that's done for the sake of public justice, for the sake of self-defense or the defense of others, or in the cases of just war. Often in life, killing is justified, but murder, as defined, is never justified. Uh, we are to be people who take life seriously. We take the protection and defense of life seriously. But this command is bigger than murder. It, it isn't less than murder, though. Um, it's bigger because if the principle is that life is valuable because it's made in the image of God, then we have deeper demands that God places on us. For example, it's not enough just to defend others and not to commit murder. Our larger catechism puts it this way. It says the duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of others, ourselves and others. Now it goes on. Larger catechism is called larger for a reason. Um, they, you should read the rest of it. But the idea is that we're not just not killing others. We are valuing life by caring for others. One of the best examples of somebody putting the command not to murder into practice is the story that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan. 
You have Luke chapter 10, this man who is set upon by robbers. He's beaten, he's stripped, and he's abandoned. We know the story, of course. I think most of us know the story. How this Samaritan man, who was considered an outsider, he took this man, bound up his wounds, poured oil and wine on his injuries, and carried him to an inn and took care of this man. He paid for his expenses. Now let's just pause for a moment. Think about that. This is no small thing. All right, the, the, the Samaritan upended his trip, changed his plans, went deep into his own pockets for this other man. Now, this man actually became a project for the Samaritan. Think about how easy it is for us to get around. Think about how hard it is for the Samaritan to get around. Think about how hard money is to come by for the Samaritan. Think about how hard transportation is for them. This stuff is easy for us usually. And this man put his life into this man. This man became his project. He was inconvenienced, to put it mildly, and yet he did it. And Jesus tells this story not as an illustration of going above and beyond. The story is a story of what it means to be a fellow image bearer. This is basic, ordinary, human obligation that we're talking about here. We are obligated to love our neighbor like this. Why? Because whoever this person is, Whatever has happened to them, whatever they have done in life, they have been made in the image of God and they bear the emblem of the king. Whom as God's people, we say we love. Right? We say we love God. Who are the people that you are the most tempted to neglect? Who are the people that you are the most tempted to overlook or just not care about? Maybe you dismiss them. Are there ways in which you have neglected this command? Has God presented you with people whose wounds need to be bandaged, people whose lives are in danger, and you have decided for some reason to overlook them? The point here is this. The command, you shall not murder, is bigger than it looks. We have not fulfilled this command just because we haven't swung an axe or stabbed someone, or, or tried to kill somebody with a gun. We, just because we haven't knowingly harmed others does not mean that we have kept this command. If we've seen a need, and we've decided not to help, we are also guilty. Perhaps the most profound display of love in this regard is the life of Jesus himself. What does Jesus do? He looked at his people and he took us up in his arms, and he bandaged us, and he dressed our wounds, and he poured oil on us, and he cared for us, and by his stripes we were healed. He took us up in our, our sore estate, and he said, I will give all that I have for these people. I will pay whatever it takes to bring healing to them. And he brought us to the end of the Father. There's another place where Jesus tells us greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Right? Lay down his life. His life made in the image of God also. He says there is no greater love that you can show than that. And then you take that statement and you turn it upon Jesus and it intensifies the gaze of the creator and then the gaze of the son. He is our defender, isn't he? He's our, he's our rescuer, isn't he? No one ever loved human life the way Jesus did, the way Jesus does. No one ever protected others like Jesus. 
If you ever wonder about the value of the image of God, you need to only do one thing. You look at the cross. You look at the lengths that Jesus went to in order to save men and women, boys and girls, from the darkest and deepest pit of despair. And we can know that rescue by trusting in Jesus Christ by faith alone. Our Savior modeled for us better than anyone ever could what it looks like in practice to love life made in the image of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, like the beaten and broken man by the road, we were all in a desperate position. You sent your son to preserve life. You sent your son to defend his people. You sent him to be our rescuer, people made in the image of God. Would you give us wisdom as to when others need rescue and defense? Would you make us willing to lay down our own lives for the sake of others? But give us wisdom and understanding as to how we might do that. Always looking to Jesus as the supreme model of what this love looks like. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.